Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, after three weeks of often wrenching testimony, a Minneapolis jury found former police officer Derek Chauvin guilty of murder and manslaughter in the killing of George Floyd. In this hour, we want to hear from you. How are you feeling today about the jury's decision? What do you think it means for broader efforts for racial justice and law enforcement accountability as we hear of yet another police killing, this time of a teenage girl in Ohio? There's a lot to process. We hope you'll join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. A guilty verdict in a police killing is extremely rare in the U.S., but for many, the verdict in the case against Derek Chauvin brings relief, but not celebration. There is still much work to do to address why black people's encounters with police often end in violence or death, as the police killing of 16-year-old Micaiah Bryant yesterday in Ohio sadly reaffirms. How are you processing it all? How do you think the guilty verdict relates to broader efforts for racial justice and law enforcement accountability? You can share your thoughts by calling 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can always post your comments on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email us forum at kqed.org. Joining me now is Nikki Jones, professor of African-American studies at UC Berkeley and author of The Chosen Ones, Black Men and the Politics of Redemption. Dr. Jones, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Can I ask you first just how you felt as the verdict was read by Judge Cahill yesterday? As the judge was was reading the verdict, my thoughts uh, were really with the family of George Floyd and those who cared for George Floyd and, and those who loved him, uh, and hoping that this verdict brought some peace uh, to them that, and, and that it, it felt like justice uh, for them. Um, I think that that sense of relief uh, and release uh, was also there. Um, and as you said, it was short-lived uh, because of the killing of a, a 16-year-old girl uh, by the police in Columbus, Ohio. And so you barely have a moment to take a breath right before the next uh, incident occurs, which is, I think, evidence of the continued work that is needed uh, to move toward transformation uh, and, and beyond reform. Yes. And so given that, what do you see this verdict as? Do you see it as 
a turning point, progress, simply an acknowledgement of the truth of reality. Yeah, you know, throughout the trial uh, and then listening to the verdict, I thought again and again about the extraordinary violence and ordinary dominance of policing. That's really what characterizes policing. And what we saw through the trial and what we saw in the verdict is, is a strong rebuke of the or extraordinary violence of policing. And without a doubt, Derek Chauvin's actions were extraordinary. But my concern was that, that in marking Derek Chauvin's actions as beyond the line, you can legitimize and justify everything else, that entire universe of ordinary dominance mm. that may just approach the line, but doesn't cross over the line. And when we, what we, when we think about what got people out in the streets, not only over the course of summer 2020, uh, but after post-Ferguson and on and on, and even before Ferguson, it was the routine forms of dominance and aggression and violence in tandem with those extraordinary acts of violence that were met with impunity. Uh, so the work still remains even after the, this historic moment. And it is historic because it has been so difficult to hold officers accountable uh, for this kind of violence. And yet right, it is not uh, an end point. Such as an, some I feel it is. Yeah. Yeah. Such an important point you're making. And you're also making me think about as I think about how rarely uh, police killings have ended up being charged, much less a guilty verdict for murder. I'm left thinking about what it took uh, for this for this to be different, for this to be a different outcome than what we're used to, and what it says about where we are on the path toward justice. I think about the extraordinary legal team that Attorney General Keith Ellison put together, the uh, the witnesses he had who shared, you know, Darnella Frazier sharing just how traumatized she has been by the experience and that she continues to apologize for not doing more. And, and you think about the police chief also of uh, in Minneapolis speaking against Chauvin, all of those things had to be in place. And I wonder what you think about that, what that says about America. You know, I'm, I'm thinking um, this morning of what I've heard in some of the coverage from, from organizers and activists cautioning us uh, against seeing this as a victory of the system, right? And instead seeing this as a victory of the people hmm. because it was the people who pushed uh, immediately against the official record of, of George Floyd's murder that was released uh, after uh, the killing, that pushed for the firing of the officers, that pushed for the charging and pushed and pushed and pushed in Minneapolis uh, and around the world. And so that really can't get lost in, in, in exactly what you're saying, what it took for the system to respond in the way that it did. Now, in some ways, anytime a, a black person is killed by the police, the world should erupt. There should be a rupture and, and, and all of this should be released. And yet, if it takes that every single time in order to get justice, right, it is not, in fact, a system of justice. When you think about true justice, we often hear, and I think this is what you are alluding to, too, is that true justice is a system that doesn't leave so many dead after police encounters, and particularly black and brown people. What does true justice look like to you as that has been sort of a, a, a phrase that has been mentioned as a way to differentiate between what's happened yesterday and what needs to happen? 
Yeah, I've thought a lot about this in part because, you know, people ask me to, to, to think about this and I just think about it in my, my own work. What does justice mean? And I think it means something different depending on your relationship to the people and to the problem. So to go back to what, what justice may mean for the Floyd family, um, it, it may not be aligned with how I think of justice. I mean, one of the kind of challenges for me and the contradictions here is that uh, the punishment of Derek Chauvin which a sanctioning is, is certainly well deserved, but the punishment for his degrading and dehumanizing treatment of George Floyd is going to be to send him to a system that is bent on degrading and dehumanizing people. And at its root, right, is anti-Blackness and anti-Black state violence and racial control. And it will uh, absorb some white people, right? But, but it doesn't disrupt the intention of the system. And so, so much of the conversation on justice and what that means over the last year and how I've been educated around that and what I've learned over the last year is to push back against these logics uh, of punishment and and carcerality uh, that are are too often used as a source of racial control uh, and, and, and punishment. And that is a challenge. And that's the challenge that abolition calls us into considering and that and it provides some ideas about how we might respond but that kind of you know the way that I'm thinking about it is not a replacement for what justice might mean for George Floyd's family or what it might have meant for George Floyd Uh, I do think that Duante Wright's mother uh, who was um, killed in Brooklyn Duante Wright was killed in Brooklyn Center uh, by the police she said that justice is not going to bring her son back I think that there is truth to that. And yet we have a justice system that ought to act in a certain way in the way it says it's designed to act, right? Uh, if, if it's going to exist. Uh, so I think that the short answer is that there, what justice means is not an easy answer. No, but, but the way you just described it, I think is, it, it really does show both the, the nuances the broadness and the specificity for all of us in so many ways mm-hmm. with these kinds of experiences. We're talking with Nikki Jones, professor of African-American studies at UC Berkeley, author of The Chosen Ones, Black Men and the Politics of Redemption. And uh, let me go to a caller, Vernon in Redwood City. Hi, Vernon. Join us. Well, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for having this important conversation. You know, you asked the first caller what was going through her mind as she heard the verdict. And I was, we were gathered around the TV with my family. I'm a black man. I've been in part of this struggle since the 60s, um, you know, with the struggle for America's journey towards equality. I was with my family and, you know, the first, one of the first things I felt was really a sense of relief, relief that my my young daughters and my family won't have to wear yet another scar and, you know, mm-hmm. deal with having to digest the pain of what an opposite verdict would have said about where we are uh, as a people. And, um, you know, I, I also, unlike some of the commentators, as a, as, as, as a black man, I, I do feel optimism. I do feel like, you know, this reflects progress that we've made And though it took the attention of the world, the videotapes from all angles, and all of the uh, attention that was brought to this horrible tragedy, and, you know, but the system can work. 
And, you know, that gives me cause for hope. Um, Vernon, I, I thank you for sharing that. And I'm so struck by your words, you know, that your children will not have to have yet another scar. And Nikki Jones, it's it's making me think about um, how so much of the emotional release that we saw was not necessarily just for one man in this one case, but but from not seeing egregious killings result in criminal charges, much less convictions, and all of that coming together to some extent. Yeah, when I think of, of this, I think about the grief that was on display um, yeah. from the witnesses, you know, the folks who were described as the, the bouquet of, of humanity who bore witness to a murder and had enough capacity in the moment to record, um, as in the case of Darnella Frazier, Frazier or, or to remember, and then had the courage and the bravery, especially young people, to get up. Um, and to testify, right, and to provide their their testimony, which is a testimony in the court, but is also a historical testimony. Um, and so certainly for many of us, um, we have a, a relief and, a, and, and that release that I talked about, and yet they will live with that trauma. We will all live with the trauma of having to witness um, that video, and they will live with the trauma of not having been able to intervene and what was a clear act of, of wrong, wrongdoing before then. And they couldn't intervene because it was the police. Um, that is not something that the children who witnessed that either directly or vicariously, um, that, that they are, are going to be, step, to be able to step away from anytime soon. And that is, that is the constant grief that we, we hold with us anytime, each time uh, an incident like this happens. We're hearing your reactions to the jury's verdict yesterday, finding police officer, former police officer Derek Chauvin guilty of murder and manslaughter in the killing of George Floyd. We're joined by Nikki Jones, professor of African-American studies at UC Berkeley, and you, our listeners. What was your reaction to the verdict? How are you feeling today? What conversations are you having right now about race, police? How do you think we as a country should move forward? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, and you can email us at forum at kqed.org. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. President Biden praised the verdict in the Derek Chauvin murder trial in a nationwide address at the White House, calling it a too rare step to deliver basic accountability for black Americans. We're hearing about the range of emotions that the trial and verdict has brought out for you. You can call us 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can email us forum at kqed.org or reach out on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. I'm talking with Nikki Jones, professor of African-American studies at UC Berkeley. And joining me now is Ton Hall, mother of Miles Hall, who was fatally shot by Walnut Creek Police in 2019. She's also an activist. 
Ton Hall, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Mina. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yes. Well, we really appreciate you coming on and when you came on last year to share Miles' story and your family's fight for accountability. And I just want to start by asking you what the verdict, the reading of the verdict yesterday brought up for you and your family. Um, you know, I mean, it definitely felt good to see. That's what I would say is justice is seeing that police officers are being held accountable for the acts that they, that they commit when they are wrong. And it, for our family, it felt like, wow, this, this is, this, this is right. We're moving in the right direction in, in, in George Floyd's case, for sure. You say in George Floyd's case, for sure, one of the things that I was also hearing from families who have lost loved ones to police killings, that while at the same time the Chauvin verdict offers some comfort, in some ways it almost amplifies the lack of a sense of resolution for their own families. Did it have that effect for you? Yeah. In fact, my husband and I were talking about that yesterday and just like, okay, this is good that there's the police are accountable in this case. But what about our family? Like, where's accountability for the police officers that shot Miles? Like, we feel like there's none. Like, they still, you know, were put on the street back within 10 days. The district attorney, we're still waiting on the investigation to be completed. Um, you know, if, if, something, if something happened to another family member in Walnut Creek today, I feel like things are still the same. Like, there's no really true policy and procedures that have changed. Um, they haven't changed their, you know, when officers go back to back on duty, it, it's still, so I feel like for us, we, we feel like we would, we want our area, our people to be accountable as well. Our leaders. Yes. And though the city, you reached a settlement with the city, uh, with regard to Miles's case at this point, has that created any closure for you or do people misjudge what a settlement really means for a family in this case? Yeah. I mean, it definitely hasn't, there's no justice in the settlement, right? It's just to um, move on for us. It was moving on to another chapter so we could focus on the advocacy that we're doing. You know, we're really working on changing the way that the mentally um, ill are handled in Contra Costa County to make sure that there's a non-police response. So it's really been able to have us focus on, on changing the systems and governments. But as far as a settlement, I mean, it's, it's money. It, it's, it, it's not going to bring miles back. And speaking of miles in terms of your work through the miles hall foundation, are you seeing this verdict, this seeing justice in the case of, George Floyd in Minneapolis, giving sort of uplift or wind in the sails of your work through the Miles Hall Foundation. And please share a little bit about what you're trying to accomplish with the Miles Hall Foundation as well. Yeah, no, I mean, in my, um, George Floyd was killed um, a year after Miles, a, a week, a, a sh one week short of, of that. Right. And as soon as, as soon as that happened, um, as soon as George Floyd was killed, um, there was a lot more um, activism with people wanting to show up for miles and our family. Uh, we had a lot of support, but we had a lot more. It really elevated our foundation and our platform, the Miles Hall Foundation, so that we could really focus on the things that are important. And that is 
um, holding police accountable, making sure that there's a non-police response to the mentally ill. And then also now we have, there's new legislation. So I would say that uh, out of all the things that are amazing, or, you know, that are not amazing, but all the things that have happened, um, one amazing thing is that Rebecca bauer Kayan in Arenda has now um, created legislation that instead of calling 911, there's a 988 number. It's called the Miles Hall Lifeline Act, AB 988. So of everything that's happened, I would say that feels like we're really moving the needle um, as far as accountability and um, making sure that families have other ways to help their loved ones in a mental health crisis. Ton Hall, mental health activist, mother of Miles Hall, who was fatally shot by Walnut Creek Police in 2019. You can learn more about Miles and Ton's work through the Miles Hall Foundation. Thanks again, Ton Hall, for calling. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, yeah, so I would just say um, you can go to justiceformileshall.org to, to also see the work we're doing. So thanks again, Mina. Have a great day. You too, Tom. Thank you. Again, we're hearing your reactions to the jury's verdict yesterday in terms of finding former police officer Derek Chauvin guilty of murder and manslaughter in the killing of George Floyd. And Nikki Jones, professor of African-American studies at UC Berkeley, author of The Chosen Ones, Black Men and the Politics of Redemption, is with us as well to hear your thoughts and reactions. And wondering if you have a reaction to what Ton was saying, uh, Nikki Jones, just in terms of she says moving the needle, um, though at the same time as she's saying that, all I could think about was, as we mentioned earlier, the extent to which there is still so much change to be had. And as if to just drive home that point, we have the situation in Columbus, Ohio with Micaiah Bryant. And so anyway, just, just curious what your initial reactions were to her. Yeah, well, my, my heart, um, breaks. Uh, and, you know, there's nothing that can bring, can bring back a, a, a child uh, who has been killed by the police, a parent who is killed by the police, a loved one who has been killed by the police. Um, and so that is part of the reason why people talk about accountability um, and not justice. And at the same time, as I said at, at the top of the show, that what justice means is is what what people who have experienced this loss says it means for them in that moment um i think we see often family members mothers of of, of victims of police violence moving the conversation forward moving the work forward and i do think that the rupture that was created in the wake of the killing uh, wake of the killing of, of derek chauvin's murder of, of george floyd released so much momentum um and momentum from work that has been going on uh, for decades prior, um, that has finally, um, you know, led to some significant change. I, I think uh, when it comes to reducing the contact that uh, police have with people, and it is the the contact that is the risk factor. Um, that once you are in an encounter with the police, the threat of that extraordinary violence that I talked talked about earlier is always there, uh, and so. That is in part what makes, that is exactly what makes um, encounters with the police um, so dangerous. Uh, and so to the extent that those encounters can be reduced, you, know, you, you might be able to save lives. Yes. And at the same time, it's an entire institution of policing uh, that needs to be uh, addressed, challenged, transformed, and not even, you know, not even to transform policing, because that's not the project. It's, it's to transform how we think about safety how we think about community well-being. And once you start thinking about that, you actually start thinking less about policing because policing doesn't provide that.
Let me go to John in San Diego next. Hi, John. Join us. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. I'm just kind of curious. I don't know if many white people have called into your show or called in to say how they felt about it. But yesterday when I was listening to that, I could feel my chest kind of just like welling up. And before I knew it, I was crying. I still kind of emotional about the whole thing because I think it's so incredibly sad that all of that had to happen. All these hundreds of years that come to the one point where people are now talking 24-7 about an issue that's been there right in front of their eyes all these many, many, many years. It's just in- incredible to me. And I didn't even grow up in this country. It's just amazing to me that this poor man has to die and this other and this poor kid again yesterday had to die for this discussion to kind of take such gravitas and to make it push it forward and Mm. i'm so sad to see this in this country just so sad john i've I've heard echoes of what you've said as well and i appreciate you calling in nikki jones i want to play this clip from michelle watts an activist who was out in oakland yesterday about her reaction to to what it took to some extent What happened to George Floyd is not worth the small piece of what is considered a victory. And and again, what I fear is going to happen, we're just going to go back to the status quo because now white America will believe, right, that they've given the black community some piece of justice, something that we can hang our hat on. Nikki Jones, there are fears that not only will this not provide uplift, but I think even that there will be a backlash. I mean, I think back to when we elected President Barack Obama and suddenly we were declaring a post-racial America. The conviction of a white police officer in the killing of a black man will give license to declare, you know, the justice system reformed. Are you bracing for backlash? Are you thinking about that, Nikki Jones? I'm always bracing for backlash. <laughs> uh, you, you might remember that I don't know, from, from some of what I, I shared last year, um, you know, um, you know, that threat is is always there whenever there's anything that looks something like a victory uh, for racial justice or for black people. You know, but but, you know, her comments also make me think about the critique of, of prisons and the critique of carceral logic. So prisons disappear people, prisons disappear problems. And so the concern here is that in disappearing Derek Chauvin, people can think that the problem has been solved. And that's how it was set up in the trial, that the problem was not the policy. The problem was not the training. The problem was that Derek Chauvin didn't follow policy and training. You know, sort of the bad apple defense. or Right, right. The bad apple defense. But what do we know about Derek Chauvin? He worked in the Minneapolis Police Department for 20 years. He was a field training officer. So they had enough confidence in him. The Minneapolis Police Department had enough confidence in him and his understanding of policy formal and informal in his understanding of training to 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 promote him to supervise and to train incoming officers. Right. And that institution and the institutional record. And we see this in research reports that that have come out. Uh, We saw this in reporting that came out after the killing of George Floyd of a a pattern and practice. And this signals to pattern and practice investigation that's starting that was announced this morning but a pattern in practice of abuse and, and de- degrading treatment and dehumanizing treatment. Uh, and, and, you know, that is, that still remains, even as Derek Chauvin uh, is handcuffed and, and walked out of the courtroom. 
Let me go to caller Cleveland in Palo Alto next. Hi, Cleveland. Good morning. Yeah, I was looking at um, all the all, all the attorneys that seem to represent all of these young black men who are killed are the same three black attorneys. And you know, never see any of the, the white attorneys take up their cases. And one time one told me is because, well, if I take your case, I'd have to move out of town because their peers don't want to see them representing a black person who who was uh, one of these type of cases. That's why you never see them representing them. For instance, I live in Palo Alto. I've had the Palo Alto police try to plant crack cocaine on me three times, tell me that they're the Ku Klux Klan. I've gone to the NAACP, ACLU, you name it, and you are uh, the city council. And all they did was transfer the police officers to other counties. So now another county has the Ku Klux Klan in there. So we never did get any help. I never did get any help. And that's why this, this is the atmosphere that's left mm. for people that, like him. That's why they kill people, black people, because he knew that, yeah, the, the judge is going to let, even if I get convicted, I'm going to get a third of what you would get. Cleveland, that, that sounds terrible. And I, I'm so sorry that happened. And Nikki Jones, he's also making me think about, you know, when you talk about how Derek Chauvin people want to try to say he was somebody who was not following protocol at the same time what what i think cleveland's point is raising is is how officers can move to different places but also i think there are a lot of questions around the officers who were with chauvin at the time and how much it takes a certain willingness to go along with what is happening and go along with a system that has appointed someone as a leader to a certain extent uh, to be able to uphold that. Uh, Pete tweets, for example, I'm hopeful but would really like to hear some genuine shame and contrition from the remaining three officers. What in the world was going on in their minds for those nine appalling minutes? Is it possible for them to show some genuine humanity? I hope so. I, I should also note there that uh, they have been charged with a a aiding and abetting murder and are expected to be tried in August. Nikki Jones, your your thoughts on that, on just the complicity. Right. Piece. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, so that that they, those officers have been charged and, and um, you know, and, and their trials are forthcoming. But, you know, I think it's important, um, one, to to understand the way that the murder of George Floyd stood so far outside of acceptable, normal human behavior. And at the same time, was consistent in ways that weren't suggested or, or weren't argued with policy and training. So they are following their field training officer. Once he arrives on the scene, they're doing what he says that to, you know to do. And it takes typically takes you know some good deal of um, you know resources in order to challenge your supervisor. So and again, who puts Derek Chauvin in charge of training? In that in that precinct, a precinct that was known and has been reported by the Minneapolis Star Tribune as having a reputation of doing things differently, right, of treating people with more aggression, aggression, more violence, more degradation. And that was known. Right. And it was tolerated. Uh, and so certainly they should have intervened. That is what humanity calls for. And professional, ordinary pressure, professional policing also puts a lot of pressure on people not to do that. We're joined now by State Senator Sidney Kamlogger, who represents Los Angeles. Senator Kamlogger, thanks so much for joining us. 
thank you for the invitation. Right now, I think for a lot of people who are feeling skeptical about this really translating into real change, especially policy change, I wanted to ask you if you could share your legislation, the Crisis Act, and why you've reintroduced it. Well, I've reintroduced it because we need it now more than ever before. Um, AB 118, the Crisis Act, would put some state money, um, you know, our skin in the game from a revenue perspective to fund a grant program that would allow community-based organizations to go out and respond to 911 calls so that law enforcement doesn't have to. We know that 70% of the calls that come in through 911 are non-violent, non-criminal in nature. They are calls around poverty, around homelessness, around uh, substance abuse, around mental health episodes, around parking nuisances, around noise nuisances, and they require de-escalation um, and intervention. They do not require oftentimes arrest and you know lethal um, interactions. And so this will fund to the tune of $30 million uh, this program so that folks who are trusted and known in the community can come out and respond to those calls. And you feel like it has a better chance now because it was vetoed by the governor. In part, do you think the verdict gives that some lift? I think so, but I think, you know, I and uh, other members of the Black Caucus have been elevating these issues for a number of years. I hope that we don't need more Black and Brown people to be killed, you know, for folks to say this is a good idea, let's fund it. Um, I think this is part of the continued discussion around what do, we, what do we mean when we talk about public safety and who are we protecting and how are we rebuilding or in some instances, even building trust between folks being protected and what that looks like and the communities where they are protecting um, and doing this kind of work. Senator Kamlogger, we're coming up on a break, but I hope you'll stay with us uh, sure. for a few more questions right after that. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're gathering your reactions to the jury's verdict yesterday, finding Derek Chauvin guilty of murder and manslaughter in the killing of George Floyd. And we're with Senator Sidney Kamlogger, state senator from Los Angeles, who represents California's 30th Senate District. Just before the break, we were talking about your your legislation and the fact that you were saying that you hope someone else just doesn't have to be killed. But of course, even as the verdict was being read yesterday, we heard about Micaiah Bryant. One of the things that I was struck by in your statements Senator Kamlogger, was that you emphasized that you are a Black mother. And I wonder what kinds of conversations you are having with your kids about the verdict yesterday and what it means. You know, they're tough conversations because it is really hard to, there's a fine line you have to walk between, you know, the truth of being Black in this country and the hope that you want your young people to have and the hope that you still want to be able to cling to. Um, but we talk often about, you know, 
what it means to be black, what you should do when you're walking outside, when you're uh, confronted by an officer, and also having a conversation about like, you know, thank God for the young woman, Darnella Frazier, who, who captured all of this on video. But yes. do we always need a video? Do we need a video to show us what we know, what we see every single time? Um, and, and, to, and that's hard to reconcile. You know, and as a black mother, you, you're not always going to have all the answers, but I think it is important to be honest about the incompatibility of being black in the United States. Well, Senator Cindy Kamelgar, I, I appreciate you so much coming on today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Again, State Senator Sydney Kamlogger, State Senator from Los Angeles. And you, our listeners, are with us, 866-733-6786, email address forum at kqed.org. We're at Twitter and on Facebook at KQED Forum. Kurt in San Francisco, join us. Hi, Kurt. Hi, how are you doing? Uh, I live in San Francisco, obviously, but prior to that, I lived in Detroit and then 20 years in Minneapolis. And I saw a lot of my friends who are also white, jump for joy that this has been resolved. It's a resolution. It's, this is, nothing has changed. Uh, especially, especially in the Twin Cities, and I'd argue in any other parts of the country, uh, there hasn't been major police reform, and if people think that they can sit down because of what happened yesterday, that's exactly the exact opposite that they should do. So um, I'm, I'm moved by what happened yesterday, but there's a ton of work that needs to be done. Kurt, thanks for sharing that. Let me go next to caller Marsha in Santa Rosa. Hi, Marsha. Hello. Uh, I'm calling to talk about the appearance and dress and equipping of the police and how that influences their attitude when they go to a call. I think it's to the advantage of the public that more people go as individuals and not as armed uh, characters mm. out of some storybook with these helmets and batons, guns, and tasers in their uniforms. They look like somebody from outer space. And I can't see why it would be difficult for them to de-escalate a situation where they're armed for the worst case. Mm. Marsha, thanks for sharing that. Nikki Jones, I, it reminds me of what you said earlier about transforming the way we think about safety. Can you share a little bit about what you mean by that and, and what you think it will really take so that the encounters with police don't end in violence? I mean, Marsha's talking about just how armed police are for every interaction. Yeah, I think both of the, the, the callers bring up really good points. <clears throat> uh, and and uh, the second caller's point, I think, ties to the, the senator's point around the, the Crisis Act and the fact that most of the calls to the police are not for in-progress violent crimes. And yet every time a police officer, officer shows up, in part because of the tools they carry with them, there is always the potential for lethal violence, right? So it's a real institutional mismatch, what is needed in the moment. And we've seen this in case after case after case is not the set of tools and resources that the police have at their disposal. Uh, the point that Kurt made about the role of, of white people and the kind of collective sigh of relief that they felt, I think is also you know, an important one um, to unpack just a bit. If we think about the, the, the uprisings, 
millions of people marching and protesting against uh, police violence and systemic racism and pairing the two as the problem, right? That is a a significant moment. It's a kind of called into a shared experience, a multiracial shared experience um, that that people who, who live as Black people in this world, right, have been having. White people may be entering it for the first time. They see this as a release moment but what black folks know is that that's not what this is, right? We get a, a, a brief, perhaps a breath. And then, yes, of course, you have another police killing because that is how it happens. Uh, and so there's a way in which for people who have just entered into this, this event happened, this tragedy happened, there uh, was some resolution uh, that's been delivered and now it's over. Folks need to understand that that's not how it usually happens. And that's not how it usually feels. Uh, and so there is, you know, as, as the caller was saying, much more work for, for those folks uh, to do to not, after critiquing whiteness and, and, and racism, systemic racism over the last year, not to fall back on your white privilege, right, to just exit this conversation now because you feel like some, some uh, resolution has been delivered. Well, almost to to punctuate your point, this listener writes, as a Black woman, it feels insurmountable to process all of this constantly accumulating grief and show up as a genuine version of myself. It's like a perpetual flagellation of an entire people. I can't. It's numbing, and I know I'm not alone in feeling that way. Chauvin's verdict is merely a drop in the bucket. That's right, yeah. And, you know, just to, to say that, to understand and contextualize this, that this has been a season of grief. This has been a long, we are still in a pandemic, a pandemic that has killed over 500,000 people that disproportionate a number of those people, black and, 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 and Latino. We know that we are carrying that grief. We are coming off of an administration that was um, racist, nationalist, authoritarian uh, in its shift that we were talking about the threat to democracy, right? And, that, and the targeting of people of color uh, throughout the entire administration, right? So all of that is on our backs. And then we're holding our breath, right? And, and, and waiting uh, on this verdict and having to do so much work to, to save our minds and, and protect our spirits through this. And so, you know, I, I certainly appreciate the caller's point um, and, and to remind us that, you know, we, we, are, we are still in a season uh, of, of, of grief. Well, we're joined now by Assemblymember Chris Holden. He's from Pasadena and represents California Assembly District 41 in the Los Angeles foothills. Assemblymember Holden, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure for joining you. Thank you. I'm not sure if you just heard that last comment by Nikki Jones, but but how are you? What has been your reaction to all of this that unfolded yesterday? Well, you know, I think that there is relief. Uh, that the the system works uh, worked this particular time uh, as it relates to an African American who was killed at the hands of law enforcement. Uh, that uh, on the other side, though, is there's still a lot of work to be done, as a lot of uh, folks have said. Um, this is really just the, the 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 George Floyd saga of what we've seen in the, in his encounter with law enforcement is really just, it, it's the foundational point now of going forward. Uh, had the young 17 year old uh, girl who was with her 
family member not taking the video of what was going on and at the moment and captured Chauvin with his knee on George Floyd's neck, then I think most would say, would this have played out the way that it did? And that would the jury have found him guilty? Would he have been able to play that privilege card uh, as so often is done and been able to escape? Would the other police officers been emboldened to say, okay, this is how we do it. And they would have continued to take that as the method of operation going forward. that's that's the that's the, the, the thing that we're going to try to have to break through now. Um, I've got legislation that's looking at the duty to intervene, which is calling on officers who are watching another member of law enforcement uh, use excessive force to injure, maim or kill a member of the public and they do nothing. Uh, there has to be. I mean, I guess the thing about it is that. We want our law enforcement officers to police. It's a tough job, but they can't look at everyone as the enemy, uh, especially black and brown people in black and brown communities. And that seems to be the method of operation, us versus them. Mm. At least that's what it feels like. When when they go into communities where African-Americans are stopped because they have... uh, uh, a card deodorizer hanging from the rearview mirror to uh, a member of military getting maced for doing nothing, an issue of registration. Th- those aren't what happens. That's not what happens in other communities. So those are the types of things that law enforcement has to take ownership of as well. These are their people. They, and, and the leadership within the, the policing uh, and not only our state, but this country, they know who the suspects are. And so they have to do more to kind of clean their own house up. We can write a lot of laws to do a lot of things that hopefully create accountability and transparency. But law enforcement has to uh, work with us in that process. And then they need to take uh, aggressive affirmative action around where they have control and to really start weeding out. Because we always talk about the bad apples. Well, they know who the bad apples are. So they need to start weeding them out. We're coming up with laws that hopefully will make it easier for that to happen, but um, got a lot of work to do. That George Floyd law that you are talking about would set guidelines governing when and how a police officer should intervene when they witness the use of excessive force by another member of law enforcement. It is a direct response to the George Floyd killings, but do you think, had it been in place, that it, it could have changed the outcome that we saw in Minneapolis with the other officers standing by? I would like to believe that it would have, but there is a culture that still exists that, and then this bill has in it where um, officers who do intervene are, there's a retaliation provision in it so that they cannot be retaliated against. But there's such a culture that even if all of this was in, I, there has to be a, a training so that the proper training is instituted and they understand from the beginning how they're supposed to do the job. The people, Chauvin was a a training officer. So who had multiple excessive use of force uh, complaints against them. After so many, you you lose your job. There has to be a raising of the bar. And and my colleague, uh, Senator Steve Bradford has a bill on 
um, where where officers would be decertified. This bill has in it also that provision that if you do not intervene when you could have and you're proven that excessive force, either the person committing the excessive force or the, or the officer who did not step in to, uh, to de-escalate the situation could also be decertified as well in the state of California, which I think is a very important uh, part of what we're trying to establish that you know there, mm-hmm. there are serious consequences. But Assemblymember Holden, there were several police reform efforts that stalled. Uh, do you think this verdict brings, I don't know, reinvigorates these efforts? We've reintroduced, mm-hmm. Yes, I think we reintroduced the bill. We had this bill out last year. It was uh, held in Senate appropriations. Um, you know, the law enforcement has a very strong lobbying uh, network, and they are very adapted trying uh, or finding creative ways to take the oxygen out of very important transparency bills. Uh, but I think even with this bill, as we've moved forward, AB 26, duty to intervene, we have tried to make adjustments to the bill to try to accommodate certain aspects without uh, taking away the, the strength and vigor of the bill. And even with our attempts to try to make certain changes, um, some segments of law enforcement have been willing to move away from um, a, a no position, but only to land in a neutral position. I don't understand why they can't just move to a support position because it's part of building the public's trust when they are seen as being a part of the solution. If they are always viewed as being dragged to the party, it's gonna be very difficult for them to internalize the changes, not just in law, but but in terms of the spirit of the law, in terms of when no one's watching, are you gonna do the right thing? Uh, and, and self-policing, and that's where I think that there's there's gotta be some real effort on the internal part of policing operations and leadership uh, to, to start breaking the culture with inside their their own rank and file. Assemblymember Chris Holden, thank you so much for talking with us. My pleasure. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. You know, Nikki Jones, as we've talked about how, as one listener put it, this is a drop in the bucket and so on. I still have to turn to you and for hope and relief. And I'm so sorry that I do that in some ways, right? It's so kind of you to let us lean on you like that today with everything that is going on. So we, we I think, have laid out just how little this one thing could, this little, little this one thing is right in this very moment and that it doesn't change the system and it doesn't change anti-Blackness. But I would love to know what you think we can take from this, what you think are signs that it is the the glimmer of hope, the crack in the you know calcified mold it feels like of police narratives or so on. I just wonder where you are on that part of this. You know, I, I see this as a, a long struggle, uh, and so the the hope that I find is 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 connected to other people who have been in this long struggle. Uh, and so, you know, I think about Black feminist scholars and, and activists, um, writers in the Black uh, intellectual tradition that I go back to again and again during times like this. Uh, and, you know, where I do see um, faith and promise and possibility, I have to tell you that when I'm talking to abolitionists, um, they are not as um, they are far more um, kind of forward looking than than reformers are. <laughs> reformers seem really, you know, quite down. 
uh, and unsure what the future holds, but abolitionists are committed to a vision of a world that, that is um, built on life-affirming institutions. And that's a project that any of us uh, can connect to uh, and certainly be inspired by the work that activists and organizers are doing right here in the Bay Area, the Black Organizing Project, Getting Police Out of Schools, the Anti-Police Terror Project, leading the work on, on reimagining public safety. Um, the, uh, and there are so many people I could, I could list who are doing this work. I think about the work of AAPI Women Lead or responding to anti-Asian uh, hate. I mean, there are so many people out there who, who aren't uh, asking that question or about hope, but are just doing the work. Uh, and yeah. so that's where I find, I find inspiration. Yes. Know? And turning to the work. Well, let me end with two comments. Trisha writes, how can anyone rest if all our communities are not safe? I'm a white 58-year-old woman. My heart aches for my black friends and community members who feel terror around their personal safety and that of their family members. I'm praying that we come together in this moment, transform and connect with one another, and commit to a way forward that unites us in peace, safety, and justice. Jordan writes, we are not celebrating that the problem has been solved, but we can and should celebrate that brave individuals oppose the status quo and organized, witnessed, and testified in hopes that justice would be served. Nikki Jones, I can't thank you enough for coming on today to process this with me, with our listeners. It really means a lot. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Nikki Jones, professor of African-American studies at UC Berkeley, author of The Chosen Ones, Black Men, and the Politics of Redemption. My thanks also to Ton Hall, Senator Sidney Kamlogger, and Assemblymember Chris Holden. Also, deep thanks to producer Susan Britton, who produced today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks for sharing your thoughts and reactions with us today. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.